The Apostle Paul once wrote to his fellow bishop and son in the faith, Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This verse from 2 Timothy is the primary verse used to defend the doctrine of sola scriptura. This is precisely what my guest and I did for many years. But does this verse teach sola scriptura? What does it say about the Bible we hold in our hands and which we consider so foundational to our faith now nearly 2,000 years later? This is what my guest and I will discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios. Uh, It's a great pleasure that EWTN has invited us back uh, to broadcast Deep in Scripture. It's been about two years due to schedule changes, but now the EWTN has inaugurated uh, EWTN Radio 2. Uh, We've been invited to be a part of that. What a great privilege it is. And uh, for those of you that are familiar with Deep in Scripture, you can still access all the old Deep in Scripture radio programs on deepinscripture.com. Well, I don't do this program alone. I always invite a guest who brings with him or her far more credentials than I'll ever have, and such is the case today to join us on the program. Actually, as a friend who will be a regular guest on the program, Dr. Kenneth Howell. Ken, are you there? Yes, it's great to be here, Marcus. Ken, it's great to have you here, and I'm going to have you a lot on the program uh, as a regular guest, so for those listening, maybe I'll give a nice little bio uh, to help the audience know uh, what you bring to the program. Ken is the resident theologian of the Coming Home Network International. Dr. Hall taught in higher education for almost 30 years, most recently for over a decade as a professor of religion at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, where he taught classics classes, excuse me, on the history, theology, and philosophy of Catholicism. Dr. Howe was a Presbyterian minister for 18 years and a theology professor for seven years in a Protestant seminary where he taught Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, as well as biblical interpretation in the history of Christianity. And Dr. Howe has authored dozens of articles and seven books, including new translations of the early church fathers, Clement of Rome and the Didache, and Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp. Of Smyrna, and those two books you can you can find out information and purchase from chresources.com. Now, Ken, all that stuff means uh, quite a bit, but probably the most important part is that you're a husband and a father. Yes, indeed. I've been uh, Sharon and I have been married for 39 years, and uh, we have three children, and, and now we have four grandchildren. So we're very very thankful, and I'm, I'm thankful to be here because uh, this really is important. What you're what you're endeavoring to do here with regard to understanding Scripture within the context of the Catholic faith. Well, years ago, the, the idea for the Deep in Scripture program came about because maybe the motto of the Coming Home Network is um, to be deep in Scripture and deep in history helps us to become deep in Christ. And so we did for many years deep in history conferences and and. Uh, even programs, but deep in scripture uh, ties into our background and how much 
we love scripture and recognize its inspirational authority in our lives. And I know that's been a big part, both of your ministry as well as your teaching for so many years, Ken. Mm, yeah, it sure, certainly has. Yeah, the, uh, well, it really is the ultimately the scriptures that led me, as I think it did you, to embrace the Catholic faith and to see that it is the natural trajectory or fulfillment of uh, any Christian's longing to live by the Word of God. Well, we could start uh, the restart of this program with any number of verses, but you and I thought, well, let's begin with this one. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. There's a, there's a wider context, but let me read that passage. I know the audience, any of the audience that's uh, who are students of Scripture are familiar with this passage. I'm going to read from the Revised Standard Version. Let me read it, Ken, and then maybe the first thing to ask you is to give us a, kind of a wide, first of all, why this passage is important to you, but also then give us a, 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 a wider context so that we can approach this uh, Scripture from the context in which we need to hear it. This is Paul writing to Timothy. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Marcus, this uh, text is, uh, as you have already intimated, um, one of the standard and, and most important texts that traditional Protestant Christians cite in support of the idea of the sufficiency of, of Holy Scripture to give us all that we need. And that's the way that I understood it and took it um, for many years. And the reason, of course, is because that Paul says here that, that the Scriptures are breathed by God. They're breathed out by God, uh, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore they have the authority of God. Uh, with them. And, and it's not surprising that Paul would say such a thing to this young new bishop, uh, Timothy, his protege in the faith, because um, he wants Timothy to understand the importance of imparting truth to the people of God. If you, we were to look at the verses in the context, uh, if we go back up, for example, to verse 10, uh, Timothy, uh, Paul says to Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my struggle, my purpose, my faith, my endurance, my love, my patience, my persecutions, and my sufferings, which happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, and which the Lord delivered me from them all. So what he's saying here is that you've, you've watched the, the faith being lived out in me. And now that I'm not there, it's so important for you to lay hold of the Scriptures which you learned even as an infant at the uh, knee of your grandmother and your mother. And that's always been God's way of, um, of instructing his people to call them back to the truth of, of his words. And that's why, that's why it's so important for us as Christians to understand that God's word is the very foundation of our life. Um, you know, uh, back in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 8, um, there Moses reminded the people that God let them be hungry for a while in the desert so that he would feed them with manna so they would learn, not that they needed manna, but he goes on to say, but that you should live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds uh, from the mouth of God. So um, 
Paul here is giving us a teaching or a understanding of, of the importance of God's Word that stretches back to the very beginning. You know, you you drew us back to verse 10, 2 Timothy 3, 10, mm-hmm. in which Paul was reminding Timothy of the wider context of the Christian teaching that is the foundation for Timothy's preaching. In other words, what you have observed, Paul says, in my teaching, my conduct, my life. And Ken, I want to draw our attention back to another letter that Paul wrote, uh, his second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 15, in which Paul says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. And the reason, just for a second, to draw attention to that is that, along with many other scriptures, seems to um, confirm the idea that Paul's normal way of passing along the deposit of faith that our Lord had given to the apostles, that our Lord had also given to Paul on the road to Damascus, was normally to be passed on then orally. That was the normal means. But when they couldn't get there, then they would augment that teaching with writing. Yeah, I, I think um, what Paul is is pointing us to in that text, and it's interesting the the verbs that are used here. He says, "Stand and hold on, grasp on to their traditions," and in other words, the the content of the gospel was first shared verbally, right? through the preaching of the gospel, and it was passed on to people in the <clears throat> churches that were founded by Paul and Barnabas and Silas as they went throughout Asia Minor. And that's what the book of Acts, of course, teaches us or tells us. Um, in that process, the question was, what did those original apostles teach? Who were the official representatives, the official emissaries of Jesus Christ. So that through the apostles, one had a connection to Christ. Um, you know, it's interesting that without that, that, that text, I think, alludes to the fact that um, there really was no, at, at first, no obvious intention to write the New Testament. Right. <laughs> but that it became a necessity as the apostles died off, and as there was distance between the churches, these things became a part of the necessary instruction to hand on the faith from generation to generation. And the danger of, therefore, pulling these, what were initially understood as temporary or augmented expressions of the faith written down, but they were assumed to be a part of the bigger deposit that was being passed on. So it shows the danger of of only emphasizing the written word, inspired as it is. I think of another verse earlier in 2 Timothy, uh, uh, essentially two chapters before the verses we're looking at, where Paul, in 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul is commanding Timothy, he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses... And trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We see in that Paul's charge to Timothy to choose mm-hmm. faithful uh, witnesses so that this tradition, this teaching 
that Paul received and then now passes on to Timothy can be faithfully passed on and on and on and on. He doesn't say in there, just make a copy of this letter that I'm sending you. He's mainly saying, pass on that which you received. Hmm. Yeah, and this is this is exactly what the word traditio means. It means it comes from the Latin word tradere, which means to hand on. And uh, many many theologians have pointed out the fact that the responsibility of the church is not to make up new doctrine. It's not to make up new things. Certainly, it's not to conform itself to the spirit of the age or the zeitgeist of, that we live in. The the purpose or the the responsibility of the leadership of the church is to hang on the faith that was once given. And it turns out that that's, that's usually done, even in the modern world where many people are literate, it's really done person to person, like parent to child, or uh, between teacher to student. Uh, that's the way most people learn about any subject, but, but especially the faith. So this process that he's talking about here, you're, you're reading in Second Timothy 2, 2, um, you can envision four generations there. There's me, the things you've heard from me, there are many witnesses, commit to faithful men who in turn will be able to teach others also. So it's this passing on of the faith, which is the normal process of people learning uh, how to follow Jesus Christ. So that's a wonderful expression of the context of our passage you want to look at. And so the normal way that Paul and the other apostles would pass on the faith is through the teaching and preaching, and then that'd be passed on. If they couldn't arrive at a place, then especially Paul in chains writing the letter to Ephesians or to mm-hmm. Colossians um, or Philippians, he's augmenting what they've already received from him and others reminding them of their faith. So really the emphasis is the oral teaching of the church. However, in this passage, Paul isn't referring to the letter that he's writing. He's referring to Scripture. And so we come back from the break. That's where we'll jump right in, Ken, is what was Paul referring to in verse 16 when he said all Scriptures? We'll be back in just a moment. Dr. Howe has two wonderful books on the early fathers. They're both translations as well as theological commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. Uh, They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. His second book is on Clement of Rome and the Didache. And the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache are two of the most important documents from the early days of Christianity. For Christians today... These earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. In a time when Christians everywhere are seeking a greater visible unity of faith and order, these documents provide rich food for thought. If you're interested in these books by Dr. Howe, or would like to purchase them, please go to chresources.com. Thank you. All right, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host, and I'm again joined by good friend Dr. Kenneth Hall. Ken, let's look at then the verse that Paul writes, all Scripture is inspired by God. 
What was Paul referring to when he said Scripture? Well, the word that he uses here, graphe, in its basic meaning is just writing. Um, but it was the technical word that Christians and Jews, in speaking Greek, um, referred to the whole Old Testament that they had inherited from their forefathers. Um, so I think that what Paul is saying here is that he's seeing maybe two things. One is that the entirety of Scripture that we have received from the hand of God um, is breathed out from God. That's what sometimes it says inspire, but it's sometimes translated God breathed. God breathed out these thoughts, these words to the human authors, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth, and gave us that. But it may also mean that not only is all of Scripture in a general sense, but every text is inspired by God and is profitable. And I think you see that second meaning being lived out by the Jews who were meticulous in their consideration of, of the text of the, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. And he's I think Paul is uh, saying the same thing to to them. He's not referring to in the New Testament because the New Testament doesn't exist as a book yet. But all of those writings which are inspired, uh, so he's probably referring to the Old Testament uh, as, the, as understood by the Jews. Yeah, I, I remember when I was a pastor and I would preach this passage from the pulpit. I don't know if you did this, Ken, but generally when I read this passage, in one of my hands I was holding up the Bible as a visual illustration of what I presumed Paul was referring to. All scriptures inspired by God and I will hold up the Bible. But, but the question is, when Paul was writing this uh, letter to Timothy, uh, as an augment to the to the wider teaching that Paul had passed on to this to Timothy, Timothy was a convert to the faith. Um, you know, let's talk more about the word scripture and what likely Paul was referring to, because as you had quoted earlier, uh, in uh, let's see, in verse fifteen, before the verse before, Paul says, "How from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred." writings which are able to instruct yeah. you for salvation. Yeah. So, I mean, specifically, what was Paul likely in his mind referring to when he wrote this? Well, you're pointing us to verse 15 is very um, wise because he says, from infancy, you have known the sacred writings. And that is paralleled by a verse earlier in Second Timothy when Paul is, is trying to stir up um, a love of holy things in Timothy, he says to him in uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, he says he wants him to remember, uh, to keep in his mind that faith, that un, that unhypocritical faith, which first dwelt in his grandmother Lois and in his mother Eunice, and which, Paul says, I'm convinced is also in you. So what you're putting these things together, clearly his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice must have read the scriptures to him. Now, when it says, it doesn't say that though that they read them actually, it says that he, he knew the scriptures. That could also mean um, something that a lot of modern people don't realize 
is that a lot of some ancient people, those that were inclined to learning, they actually memorized long passages of the Bible. <laughs> and um, and we know this happened in ancient Greece. They, I mean, they would memorize these long poems, uh, epic poems, to be recited in the various festivals of ancient Greece. And it's most likely that that took place in uh, in Hebrew culture as well. You know, Ken, so, there's a... I wish I could remember, you probably know it more from your academic, but there was an old Greek philosopher writer. It may have been Plato, but someone else had a story about the guy who discovered writing. And in the story, the philosopher warns the the person yeah. who who wants That's to use Plato. writing yeah. that he will become ignorant and, and unable to remember things if he surrenders to writing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Plato, in a couple of dialogues, talks about the the superiority of memory to writing. And now you just uh, multiply that by a thousand times with computers today. (laughs) Because what do we do? We depend upon a hard drive. And the reason that's bad is because by memorization, it's not just a matter of rote memory. You're actually internalizing what what you're remembering, and it's becoming a part of you. So this is what Paul is, is telling him. You've known these things since childhood. They've been a part of you. Now, remember that these scriptures are what, if you meditate upon them, if you think about them, if you internalize them, they are going to become a part of you, and you're going to be a man of God prepared for every good work. Now, let me push even a little farther on that. When he says all scripture, there seems to be strong enough data, because you're a Greek scholar, to uh, to at least suggest strongly that what Paul and Timothy are referring to here is the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Yeah, that certainly uh, c- could be. Um, we don't know, you know, whether he, Timothy knew uh, Hebrew, where we can be pretty certain, I think, that Paul did, because he trained as a rabbi in the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, but since the time of Alexander the Great, you know, in the fourth uh, century B- or the third century BC, um, Greek became the common language of the eastern part of what then became later the Roman Empire, which means that Greek was spoken on the streets of Jerusalem. We know that's true in the second century. Um, that's why I would, I, I sort of contest the uh, common assumption among Christians and Catholics that Jesus spoke only Aramaic. He probably spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, and even Greek. Um, now, what that means in, then is that if Timothy did not know Hebrew, even though he was of Jewish origin, then they would have used the Septuagint. And that Septuagint, we know included the so-called, what people today call the apocryphal books or the deuterocanonical books. But this was the, this was the Old Testament Hebrew being translated into Greek prior to the time of Christ. And this is what Jewish Christians outside of probably Jerusalem would have nourished their lives on. It seems to me, again, you're a, more of a Greek scholar, Ken, but it seems to me when I've looked at New Testament quotes from the Old Testament. For example, the text that Luther himself uh, pointed to for the foundation of his theology, he who through faith is righteousness shall live, that by comparing the actual wording in the New Testament to the quote from the Old Testament, often 
the English in the New Testament doesn't match the English in the Old. However, by comparison the Greek behind the passage in the New Testament to the Greek of the Old in the Septuagint, it's almost word for word, which seems to be evidence that Paul was using the Septuagint as the foundation for his quotes from the Old Testament. Yeah, that that's true. Now, in Paul's case, we, we can see both that he may be translating from Hebrew or in most cases, he is quoting from the Septuagint. Now, if Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, there's absolutely no question about it. All the quotations from the Old Testament in the letter to the Hebrews come from the Septuagint. They're word for word. Well, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. And Paul was always taken as the as the author of Hebrews in the early church. Mm. Generally, it's only been yeah. since then. Well, the so we're looking at this passage. We recognize that Timothy, whatever Paul's talking about in, in his use of the word for writing scripture, this is the writings that Timothy had that he heard from the time he was a young man. And so let's just say, if we conclude that, then likely when Paul's saying this, he's not referring to the whole Bible that we hold in our hands today because he's even in the process of writing one of those letters that would become mm-hmm. a part of the New Testament. Is that right. true, Ben Kent? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, there's no there's no question about it. Now, you know, some would want to extend it beyond, and, and perhaps that's not illegitimate, but uh, nevertheless, you're absolutely right about that. Well, and later in the program, I want to address that very question, is that if this passage, when Paul was writing it, if this passage was referring to the Old Testament, not the New Testament, then we want to look at, well, over history, theologically, uh, at what point did this verse come to be confident, uh, confidently assumed that it's referring to the entire canon of Scripture? We'll look into that a little bit. And also, this, uh, this idea of the inspiration of God, which is uh, the God-breathed, Maybe one more thought on that, Ken. I mean, that certainly implies the Holy Spirit behind the authority of these words. Well, yes. And what it, what I think the, the power of that is to understand the uniqueness of the Scriptures. Because we, and, and even the Church, the Catholic Church affirms this in, in Dei Verbum, the Constitution on, on, the, uh, on Revelation, the Second Vatican Council. It says that sacred scripture is the font from which all of our theology is derived. All right, Ken, let's pause there. We're going to take a break. We're going to pick up right on that in a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. See you in a bit. This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. 
CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic, but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I am joined today by Dr. Kenneth Hall. We're looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, um, and let me read them again, just in case you've just joined us. These passages are, are they're, they're often used for two theological uh, purposes, to defend the inspiration of Scripture as well as the sufficiency of of Scripture, in other words, sola scriptura. Paul was writing to Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, Ken, as I, I mentioned, you know, from your background and mine also, we these verses were used to defend the inspiration of Scripture. Um, and as well as sola scriptura. Now, um, it can't cover both topics in in one session, but maybe since I introduced the program as a sola scriptura question, uh, historically or foundationally, how did these, how are these verses used to defend sola scriptura? Well, if you look in a lot of the standard uh, handbooks or textbooks of theology, both Lutheran and uh, Calvinist as well as Baptist and others, uh, you will often see this verse as being sort of the keystone to which people appeal. When they read about how wonderful Paul describes uh, God inspiring Scripture here and being profitable, and then he lists out teaching and reproof and correction and training and righteousness, um, he they conclude from that, well, then Scripture must be completely sufficient. But what Paul is not saying here is what we read earlier in Second Thessalonians 2.15, that we should receive the traditions which come through either the word or the verbal form or by letter or the written form. Now, Paul can, on the one hand, uh, exalt the, the, the importance of Scripture without also denying the importance of verbal tradition as well. Um, and then there's the, the fact there is, and this is, a, I'm sure, what must have been important to you and to me in our faith journeys, is the realization that people point, even though they point to this as being uh, that Scripture is sufficient, the, the practical realities of history is that Scripture has not been sufficient to um, to resolve the differences among Christians throughout the ages. 
You know, I was thinking, Ken, if, in fact, um, Paul is primarily, at least initially, with the use of the word Scripture, meaning the Old Testament, if he's implying that, let me ask you this. Then how does that um, incident in the book of Acts where the uh, Ethiopian eunuch encounters... Philip, what does that incident say about the sufficiency of the Old Testament? Well, what, that's a very, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you pointed us to that, because if you remember in the story, um, the Ethiopian eunuch seems to understand very well what the prophecy in Isaiah is talking about, but what he can't do, and he says this, is, I, tell me, can you tell me who the prophet is talking about? He can't identify who the prophet is. And then Philip, it says, goes on and he begins to speak. And he starts from that scripture. He proclaims to him the good news about Jesus. In other words, the meaning of the Old Testament only becomes clear in the light of who Jesus Christ is. Now, we can get a, we can glean a lot from the Old Testament, but we can't know who we can't identify the Messiah just from the scripture itself. He has to come in the flesh. And this is, by extension, it's the same way that the New Testament scriptures for us as Christians are meant to point to and to rely upon Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh as the Son of God. You know, I was thinking of another example, and that's the, the men on the road to Emmaus. Um, yeah, you know right. they they were Jews who who knew the stories, had all their lives had heard the reading of Scripture in the temple, all their lives, and yet they still couldn't put it together, and they needed the resurrected Christ to explain to them how they all applied to Him. Well, this is the the beautiful thing about what the Church says in the Catechism and many other documents that the fullness of revelation is really in the person of Jesus Christ. The value of Holy Scripture, the New Testament especially, is that it points us back to him. And you can see that based upon the opening words of the letter to the Hebrews, where Paul says, in in the past, to our ancestors, God spoke in many and various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his Son. You know, when I was a Presbyterian pastor, Ken... One of the reasons that eventually I became convicted that I could no longer be in the pulpit was not that I had lost faith in in our Lord Jesus or uh, that I felt far from him or that I had lost any love for Scripture, never for a moment. Mm -hmm. But it was because of the problem I saw in this very text. Because if the Bible that I held in my hand is the inspired Word of God, which I believe that it is. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Then why is it that Bible-believing Christians can never agree on how to use the Bible for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, or for training in righteousness? You know, we could take any number of verses and come up with a different list on what is necessary for teaching or how we would use the Bible to rep- 
improve one another or to correct one another. And, yeah. you know, my when I was in seminary, um, besides training for pastoral ministry, my minor, in terms of what I, what I emphasis on, was New England Puritanism. Uh-huh. And the way New Englanders during the 1700s and, and uh, 1800s, 16th, excuse me, 17th and 18th century, used scripture to reprove and correct and train one another was radically different than what John Wesley was using scripture before as he rode his pony across America. And so for me, the question is, what is this authority of scripture? Well, you know, one of the things I think your your story there um, illustrates so wonderfully is that um, people filter the meaning and the application of scripture through their personal perceptions. The Puritans of New England, like Cotton Mather and so forth, uh, Increase Mather, the, these these men, Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards, Edwards <laughs> yeah, the most famous, of course. I mean, these were brilliant, learned men, but they were always filtering, as it is as is inevitable, they were filtering Scripture through their personalities, as John Wesley was his. And so, how do we avoid the subjectivity? Now, the, the scriptures are meant to be personal for us, but how do we avoid this sort of radical subjectivity? And I think the answer lies already in what Paul has said that we read earlier when he said to Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my example, my, my purpose, my faith. In other words, Paul was a living example of what scripture was teaching. Well, that's what a saint is, Right. A saint is a person who is living out the teaching of Scripture. So that's what can keep us from a radical subjectivity uh, in reading the Bible so that we, we bounce it off others who are uh, in the church, who've, who see it slightly differently. And then we come to the church to give us some kind of official determination when that's necessary. Yeah, if this verse, as I did, is essentially taken out of context to be used as a foundation for for me to proclaim a theology like sola scriptura. What is not as clearly expressed in this passage is the presumption behind it of the church. In an, an earlier letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, which this is a passage I'm sure you and I will look at in the future, is... 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, which in many ways uh, expresses the backdrop that we must recognize behind this passage in 2 Timothy. When yeah. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. And so, I mean, Ken, there is expressing Paul's normal way of teaching Timothy is to get there when they could sit down over a cup of coffee and talk about how they are to lead their people. But he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, in other words, if he doesn't get there, if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. There's the backdrop to the verses we're looking at in 2 Timothy, that the backdrop is not that the scriptures are the the pillar and bulwark of the truth, but that the the church is, that Paul represents when he writes to Timothy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
And I love the imagery of, as you say, well, I'm sure we'll get into this in the future, but I love the imagery of the column or the, the, um, the, uh, I can't think of the word of it in English now, but <laughs> the word that, you know, that stands there in the center. And you see this more clearly in, in a country like Italy than in ours. But when you're in St. Peter's Square, you see that pillar, right? Yes, right. That's there right in the middle. It provides a reference point for everybody to know how to get there. And if you've ever walked around European streets for a while, they don't. They don't do it by well. You go five streets this way, and you know to the west, and then you turn right. They 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 do it by plazas or piazzas, right? They say, well, it's near this piazza or it's near that piazza. These are the center points. I think what Paul is saying is that the church is like that. The church is like this reference point that when we don't know what to do or we don't know what to believe, we come to the church, and the church, basing itself on scripture gives us guidance and acts as the pillar, the reference point for us. All right, Ken, let's take one more break. When we get back, Ken, two things. Number one, it it may come across that we've been negative about this passage and even about Scripture. I want us, number one, I want you to talk about how, given the authority of the church, this verse did come to be... uh, illustrative of the inspiration of the entire canon of Scripture. And number two, why indeed we need to take what Paul says seriously, and that is this great gift of the Scriptures is indeed for us so that we might grow in righteousness. We'll look at that in just a moment. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1 800 664 5110. All right, welcome back to Deep in Scripture. So for some final thoughts here, I'm, this is Marcus Grodi, your host, and uh, I've been joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. We've been looking at first, excuse me, Second Timothy. 3, 16, and 17, and uh, just a couple then thoughts, uh, Ken. To, you know, I want to make sure the audience doesn't realize we have any negative view of Scripture whatsoever or even of these passages themselves. N- number one, why is it then that we do, in fact, even though Paul probably was not referring to more than what we consider the Old Testament Scriptures, why is it, in fact, when we look at these and we hear Paul's words, that we hear in them the entire canon of Scripture, and then number two, how the entire canon of Scripture is indeed a gift to us to do exactly what Paul has encouraged us to do from the Scripture. Well, I mean, I think it is a legitimate extension um, to um, apply Paul's words here about the, uh, the inspiration and the profitable nature of Scripture to the entire 
uh, canon, including the New Testament, which is something that um, Peter seems already to do um, when there was a dispute. And this is in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. He speaks about the fact that we should wait upon the Lord and be and look at the patience of God. He's waiting for people to come to him. And then he says, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote according to the wisdom given to him, speaking as he does of this in all his letters. Some of the things in them are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So that Peter already here is acknowledging Paul's uh, letters to be on a, on a par with with other scriptures. So it's, um, and as the church began to grow and, and emerge, uh, we see very early, for example, in the Didache, there's a very extensive use of the gospel of Matthew in the Didache. And it's very clear that the writer of the Didache is holding um, the gospel of Matthew as being part of scripture. So it's a legitimate extension um, to do that. And that's why we can, as Catholic Christians, we can take the entirety of Scripture and um, and live in it uh, and, and apply it uh, to our lives. Uh, the, the Bible, uh, the script, the, excuse me, the, the church repeatedly has said throughout history that that its members should read and meditate in in sacred Scripture, contrary to some of the myths that have been out there about that. Um Part of the reason is exactly what our text says, that these things are good for teaching, for for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We as men and as women of God want to become equipped to do God's work within the world. And the way we do that is by hiding sacred scripture and its teachings within our heart. You know, I look, I look back on on uh, my years as a as a pastor and, and proclaiming every sunday from the pulpit uh the inspiration of scripture and then how uh the lord uses this great gift to change our lives to challenge us and to change our lives and gives us grace so that in fact mm-hmm. it can be profitable to us but i you know with a bit of of uh, sheepishness i look back on on my own ignorance because you know, historically, during those early years of the church, when uh, the apostles and their disciples were writing what became the New Testament, at the same time there were other books being written, like the Didache and the Clement of Rome and her Shepherd of Hermas, and and then other books, the Gospel of Thomas and the uh, the Acts of Peter, and by the end of the second century. There were not just the books that we recognize in the New Testament, but there were many, many other books floating around, uh, challenging the authority of the inspired books. And there were even churches who were using these in liturgy, were using other books in liturgy and questioning, you mm-hmm. know, whether Hebrews should be considered a part of the canon. And at some time during that period, the idea of a New Testament arose. We don't know the historical moment when the leaders of the church recognized that there would this be this authoritative collection of new documents to be set aside the old scriptures. But there were a number of lists that 
we have historically we found until towards the end of the fourth century we see the gathered bishops of the church essentially finalizing it. They weren't creating mm-hmm. the canon at the end of the fourth century, right. but they right. were looking back and finalizing it. And the reason, therefore, we have this canon is because we trust that those bishops were not just some group of well-meaning Christians gathered together, but that they had the authority of the apostolic succession guided by the Spirit to declare that these books are God-breathed. And so I looked sheepishly back as I rejected the authority of the church, but I held on to the the book that the church had declared infallible. And I, I think you were also in the same boat that I was. Yeah, I certainly was. I mean, I think the... This is the this is part of the problem that people find between having to, um, on the one hand, embrace sacred scripture as an authority, but without embracing the church that actually gave us the scriptures. And as you look back in the ancient church, to put a wedge or a, a, a to sever the church from the scriptures was never the intention of the early of the early fathers those fathers in the late 4th century or saint athanasius before him or or the ones that saint irenaeus in the 2nd century um and i remember very well in, in my past thinking how could the church not be important if it was the church that decided which books should be in the new testament i just took that for granted when i was a pastor i didn't Honestly, I didn't know, as I don't think most of my congregation, probably few of my congregation, even thought about, where'd we get this book? I mean, I mean, I, we always comically would refer to some pastors that would say, if the King James good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, <laughs> you know, as if this, this yeah. book kind of dropped down from heaven <laughs> or... Yeah. By the great king. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, it yeah. did make a difference. Uh, but in fact, the, the point is that the reason that we trust Paul's word that this canon of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching is because behind the authority of this book, as opposed to any other book we might find at a bookstore, is the Holy Spirit guiding the bishops of the church to -hmm. declare which indeed books we can trust and which we can follow. Yeah, I think the Spirit clearly was guiding the church. I mean, in Irenaeus, there's a list that's given uh, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are mentioned. So that by the second century, everybody agreed. There was even no need for a decision because everybody agreed that these are the Gospels. There were other Gospels out there, but these were the Gospels that were the authoritative ones. And when they were finally had to decide on, on the final form in the canon in the late 4th century, that was just, we might say, like dealing with the problems at the edges, like, you know, Hebrews or Second Second Peter and so forth, to see whether they, because the the Spirit was faithfully teaching the church in every generation, just as our Lord said that he would send the Spirit to teach. Um, in the last couple of moments, I'd like you to talk practically. There are a lot of Christians, particularly Catholics and maybe Episcopalians and Lutherans, um, or others that belong to liturgical traditions who their hearing of Scripture primarily comes in the liturgical seasons. Mm-hmm. As a result, yeah. they may not experience the context 
or the flow of the scriptures themselves because they're hearing it in snippets from Sunday to Sunday and Sunday to yes, Sunday. Yes, that's true. And yeah. others may think, well, that's all that I need. I've got my scripture. I don't need to read it from Sunday to the next Sunday. But if you would talk practically about how personal scripture study, prayerful scripture study, is almost an urgent encouragement to us so that indeed what Paul says in this passage can happen to us. Well, I think um, there's two ways in which it's really imperative for us as uh, Christians, especially those that, as you mentioned, that come from high liturgical traditions like the Catholic Church. There's two ways in which it's important for us to dig into Scripture. One is in the traditional Lexio Divina. And that can be as simple as opening your own Bible, for example, to the Psalms, and simply reading prayerfully through what Scripture is saying. Put it in your own words, or better, enter into the experience of the psalmist. So, for example, when the psalmist says in Psalm 84 that my my soul longs for the living God to be in the courts of the Lord, um, that, that they love the God's place, dwelling place is lovely, and my soul faints for this, that ought to be our prayer as well. And I would say that that's the foundation. This is what we knew as Protestants as a devotional reading of Scripture, where it touches our heart and draws us close to God. But then there's also, I think maybe what you're alluding to there, is the fact that we need to know the Scriptures in their original historical context. And that's often what Catholics miss when they just listen to to, uh, Scripture read in um, in the liturgy or in mass, they they know the stories, but they don't know how together it all into any kind of a a coherent framework. And that's why I think some of them have responded so positively to programs like um, you know uh, uh, Jeff Caven's program about walking through Scripture. Right. And sometimes when I listen to that material, they well I've known that for years and years and years, but many Catholics don't know that because they don't know how the different stories in the Bible fit together. So we need a coherence in our understanding of the Bible. All right, Dr. Hall, thank you so much for joining us on Deep in Scripture today. Um, the reason that in the, the worship in Mass we can listen to the Word is because we trust that the Church has uh, given us the contacts of the Mass to know the place of these scriptures in our walk with Christ. But the church also encourages us to take time on our own to study this word. So thank you, Ken, for joining us. And thank you for joining us on this episode of Deep in Scripture. If you go to deepinscripture.com, you can find out more about the Coming Home Network. We'd also would love to hear from you. Send us questions and ideas that we might cover in future episodes of Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Crodi. And uh, please, God bless you. See you again soon.